freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Culminators, thank you for joining us today. Uh, listen, this is one of the moments that is very pleasing to me because I've got a repeat guest. And not only that, uh, Josh Hammer was one of my first guests on Culmination. And now look at him. He's Once he saw that I could do a podcast, he obviously <laughs> said, all right, anyone obviously can do this. Uh, and now we, now we have, uh, now we have Josh coming back and, and unlike the last time we've got his pretty face looking, looking at us and he's, and we've got his ultra cool. I mean, look at that microphone, man. <laughs> look at that thing. Look at that. I just thought like, what, what is that business around it? Is that yeah, so you yeah, don't I mean, touch yeah, it? You could take out like the Iranian nuclear program with, yeah, this, right. mic with, with this microphone, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is scary stuff. How you doing? I'm doing well. You know, it's been a it's been a half of a week and a half, so it's been it's, it's been pretty busy. But I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to the holiday weekend. That's for sure. You had lots. You've had lots to talk about and, and comment about in all your countless uh, venues. Just your main gig is Newsweek, or is yes, that, uh -huh. that is what that that is my job. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I wear a lot of side hats, uh, but my job is Newsweek, where I run the op-ed section. I have a team of uh, four deputy editors that I supervise. We're a team wow. of five. I have five, four deputies. We actually just hired our fourth uh, a few weeks ago. So we are, we, we've been expanding. It's been a heck of a ride. And I, and as you very graciously pointed out, Ron, I do host my own podcast right now, which is distributed through Newsweek, the Josh Hammer show, which is launched back in early February. So that's, that's my job and everything else on the side. Yeah. That's cool. But yes, lots of stuff. I mean, here, here's the thing you, you really have succeeded despite going to law school. <laughs> although, although it's probably arguable that it also because of going to law school. And I guess when you go to, you went to Yale? Uh, University of Chicago. For oh, okay. So you went to a real law school. Because I was going to say, the people who go to Yale don't have any expectation whatsoever of practicing law. Um, but um, in your case, clearly, uh, there is a, um, you, you know, you, you, you get to really kind of do what you love. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, look, I did work at a big law firm. I worked at Kirkland Ellis for about 15 months, um, clerked on the U.S. Court Appeals for the Fifth Circuit after that. But yeah, I mean, I'm still technically barred in the state of Texas. I live in Florida right now, but I'm still barred in Texas. But I don't really actually practice a whole lot of law anymore. I mean, I'm still involved. I still kind of, I've written a couple of pieces of legal scholarship. I do these federal society talks at law schools, but I mostly just use my legal background to inform my commentary, my writing and my speaking and all of that. So it's, it's been pretty cool. I'm not going to lie to you. It's been, it's, it's been a fun way to make a living. I, I, I would be lying if I said, I didn't look at some of my friends that I kind of left behind in, in the big law world. And I, well, well, no, that's actually not where I was going. I wasn't going there. I'm doing, I'm actually doing just fine as far as all that's concerned, but, but, but I, I, I look at them and I say, you know what, like that could have been me, but I, 
I'm just happy it's not, to be honest with you. Oh, no, you really are. <laughs> you really are. Because the, the, the more, the, the, the better fit you are for that situation, the scarier a person you generally are. Right. Um, I mean, I guess perhaps the epitome of, of this issue and is Harmeet, my partner, and the managing partner of our firm, because she really loves what she does. She's practicing law on a very high level. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have to, I mean, I, th I think she does have to be a little bit more corporate than I am, but that's easy. Um, and, you know, we're, I, I try to make it clear when people, I'm sure you get inquiries from people who want to go to law school and you have to kind of gently get across to them. You realize, don't you, that most people aren't, who go to law school don't get to do the fun stuff that I do. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, like it admittedly sounds like a somewhat condescending thing to say, and I don't particularly like to sound condescending, but yeah, I mean, like it is just simply true as a basic statistical matter that the majority of people who would matriculate at a law school, even a top 10, top five law school probably can not do what I'm doing full time. Uh, you know, I mean, like Ron, you and Harmeet are, are are having a lot more fun too than the overall majority of actually practicing lawyers. So I I think yeah. you're probably you're probably in a similar position as me. I think that's right. That's right. And and the fact is, I really had I really had to pay a lot of dues, and I really had to, you know, put up with a lot of stuff that I didn't like to do, and I was less adept at doing that than many others. But in particular, you know, not only is law school a woke experience, but working in large law firms is a woke experience. Absolutely. Just ask one of the most outstanding lawyers in America who just walked out of one of the outstanding law firms in America. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about- um, you, you, You're thinking about Paul Clement and Kirk Paul, Paul Clement, yes. Yeah. I mean- That was my firm, by the way. I mean, when I was in big law, I worked at Kirk Linnell's for 15 months. Well, I, it, that it, makes it, sense. If you were in Chicago, that's where you would, you know, that's where well, you Well, I actually go. was in the Houston, Texas office, but there's a Chicago connection there. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Well, they recruited you in Chicago. And exactly. Then you, you said, okay, but can I, can I go to Houston? Exactly. But all the, and by the way, I remember when I was at Northwestern, so we had, you know, this the same kind of thing going on. Kirkland was known as a fairly conservative, yeah. you know, place, but none of the firm, like even so-called, what were once known as Republican firms, they can't and won't withstand the pressure to be woke and to and to respond to the relentless hammering in terms of really it's cancellation there's no other way to put it look i mean you're totally right i mean you don't think you don't have to go back that far in the late 1990s early 2000s kirkland ellis's dc office just to like focus on kirkland ellis for a second you know, Brett Kavanaugh actually was in that office. He was in the he was in the appellate division of, of the Kirkland DC office, if I'm not mistaken. Ken Starr actually was in that Kirkland Ellis DC office. They, they had prolific high profile. I mean, that was after Ken Starr was a judge, obviously. I mean, they, they had prolific high-profile conservative litigators. But you know, for I guess for the for the listeners and viewers who might not be fully up to speed as to what happened recently, at Kirkland, I think it's a story worth telling because it is really quite egregious, to be honest with you. So, I, I mean, uh, Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy, who are two DC partners at Kirkland Ellis, they came over from a firm called Bancroft, which they had formed after Paul Clement, by the way, after he was booted out of King and Spalding for his work on on Doma, the Defense of Marriage Act case. So Kirkland, they knew exactly who who they were getting. They literally hired him, knowing that he had been previously booted from another liberal law firm. 
from King and Spalding. So they win this major, major, a doctrinally meaningful Second Amendment case, this Bruin case out of New York State. And the day of the opinion, the literal day that Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy were celebrating their victory with their clients, they sent out this missive saying, you can ditch your clients or you can leave the firm. I mean, just unbelievable stuff, Ron. I mean, like what happened to, to, to like honor, like integrity in the legal profession? Like you stand by your clients, like unless the clients obviously become like wholly unethical actors. But, you know, if I recall from like my legal ethics course, I mean, this is pretty black and white stuff. I mean, as a lawyer, you have an ethical obligation to stand by your clients, especially when you win a freaking Supreme Court case. That's kind of the granddaddy of them all, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't operate and never operated and will never operate on on the Paul Clement level. But frankly, uh, you know, I I left two law firms because of representation issues. Wow. And uh, that's, you know, that's why being with Harmeet makes so much sense for me. Uh, and just, you know, it wasn't the, the, the firm I was at when I won the Slants case didn't exactly embrace me, uh, notwithstanding, you know, th that uh, achievement either. It is, it's a big problem. And we just brought in an associate here, in fact, who had worked with me at that firm and had been in touch with me since last fall saying, Ron, if there's any chance that you are expanding um, in New Jersey, which we, which we ultimately have done, um, I, I just can't stand it here anymore. Uh, you know, even and his particular issue at that moment was the vaccination requirements that you know, either being vaxxed or be tested, you know, every 10 minutes. And the, the beautiful thing is that once he came here, not only does he no longer have that nonsense going on, but all of a sudden he he feels like a free man. I mean, he can talk about things, he can comment about things. The thing about being in a corporate law firm is especially in the age of social media. I mean, you have all the, oh, you have all the, you know, when I started at the old case Scholler, there was this, they actually put it in the, in, in the firm. Um, I don't know whether it was the recruiting brochure or the guidebook, but we encouraged lawyers to be involved in, in issues of public interest. It was understood that you were, you were a professional, not merely an employee. You were a professional who was supposed to develop his own, public spirited and public, you know, legally oriented public issue involvement. And the, there was, didn't matter what side of an issue you were in, you were supposed to get involved and be out there. And now if you, you know, now if those things happen, they, you, the management starts getting emails and calls from both the, the general public. I mean, you remember what happened with to the Jones day lawyers uh, after the, um, you know, uh, the, the Trump li uh, election litigation and, uh, and other law people in other law firms, but also, you know, from clients and from law schools. Uh, so, you know, it, we're, it's just, it's a, I, I do think what's going to happen is that we're, we're going to develop alternative networks. I, I do think the, the way is clear to that. And it's going to be, there's going to be some pain because, you know, you're not necessarily going to be able to advertise, you know, advertise yourself on the, you know, through the same channels as the major law firms are, but they don't seem to have any interest whatsoever in resisting this. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the legal profession, right? I mean, the legal profession obviously is, is having it, its own issues, but 
no matter where you look, I mean, this is kind of one of my biggest fears, actually. I was talking with my friend Lisa Booth on air about this a few nights ago. This is one of my biggest fears, actually, is that in America, we are very, very quickly, it seems, heading towards a, well, I was gonna say a multi-tiered society, that's true as well, but also just simply kind of a a, a, a fork in the road society where we will, have, we, we will need to have separate institutions, separate infrastructure. I mean, I really fear we're heading towards a world where like conservatives will need to get our own doctors. I mean, like doctors will refuse to like provide medical attention to us, like Hippocratic Oath notwithstanding. I'm being like a little hyperbolic here, but only a little bit, to be honest with you. I mean, there are probably any number of kind of doctors out there that based on like the conservative viewpoint on like the transgender issue, they probably wouldn't want to like, they wouldn't want us to sign up to be in that medical office. So whether it's law, whether it's banking, I mean, we're already seeing debanking. I mean, whether it's PayPal, Venmo, even bulge bracket firms like JP Morgan Chase are increasingly just basically saying that they will not do business. Uh, they will not like give out loans to gun manufacturers, whatever. I mean, like that is the world that we are currently living in basically right now. I, I really fear it's only going to get worse. And I truly wish I had kind of a panacea, an easy solution to that particular quagmire. I regret to inform you that I do not. I, I, I The one thing that I would say is that I do think conservatives are going to have to get a little more comfortable with some things, some remedies, policies that they really would not have countenanced 20, 30 years ago. As I'm talking about things like common carrier regulation when it comes to the social media companies, Justice Thomas actually referred to this in a case called Biden versus Knight First Amendment um, in April 2021. I think a lot of people in kind of uh, the more libertarian uh, segments of the right kind of cringed at that, but that really is kind of the creative thinking that really would have been anathema really to conservatives 25, 30 years ago. We're going to have to start to get a little more creative here because the situation in many respects, I think, unfortunately, is that dire. But uh, yeah, I've been meaning to write an op-ed about what happened here at Kirkland Ellis, again, my former law firm, and now I have a bit of a platform where I, I, I could write about it. I just, I just haven't had the time, but it really is just totally appalling. I mean, if, I, if I were per personally, if I were a law student, and I was obviously conservative in law school as well. If I were if I were a conservative law student and I saw the way that Kirkland Ellis just treated Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy, there is zero chance, zero, that I ever would have agreed to an even even interview with them at on-campus interviews, let alone start up that law firm. So they have just totally beclowned themselves as far as I'm concerned. And I hope that they have talented conservative young lawyers who now refuse to go there as just punishment. But it is it is going to be interesting to see what choices those those law students are going to have because. Kirkland is, again, it's not, it wasn't one of the particularly liberal firms all that long, you know, all that long ago. And as you point out, to the contrary, it, it had a lot of stars, a lot of conservative stars yeah. in their Washington office in particular. Um, I do think it is possible that some firms will be able to resist any politicization. I mean, they're not going to really be conservative law firms, but they will push back. You know, what, 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 you know, there is this network effect because if, if the corporations are folding and the corporations are the most desirable, I mean, there's nothing like a public corporation for, uh, for a law firm client. They pay on time, they pay in full, they pay the best rate. You've got to do everything right. You've got to really hit the, hit the mark, but that's, that's where the real money is. Um, other than hedge funds, of course, there's, I mean, I did speak to a uh, someone who was a general counsel in a, uh, in a software company who comes out of the Wall Street law firm environment who was telling, you know, his, his view of it was 
the people who are deciding these things at the law at the at the uh, Kirklands of the world, the managing partners, they're guys who are my age or older. Maybe they're in their 50s. Uh, I'm, 50, I'm 59. They're this is what they need to do now to go along to get along. And the problem is that they're leaving a legacy in terms of hiring, recruiting, but also in terms of quality. In other words, the, 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 the stuff they have to sign on to, to get what are perceived as, you know, minority stars or ones who are not necessarily stars, it's not going to be their problem when they have trouble manning, you know, staffing the highly sophisticated deals and litigation that these guys do in order to make their, you know, to, to make their money. That problem is going to be a common parent in 10 or 15 years. It's not their problem now, and it's working out fine for them. But that's true across the board. I mean, look at academia where, I mean, Princeton was known as one of the most conservative Ivy League schools. And I had a year ago, uh, Robert George on here telling me how, look, we've, the Chicago principal saved us and we withstood the pressure on Joshua Katz. And boom, the turnaround, the, the way they went through the back door at Princeton, and, you know, the, the series of things that they did to him that were just so outrageous, it's problematic. I mean, is everyone going to go to, you know, a handful of conservative, you know, is George Mason going to be, you know, <laughs> going to supply all the law clerks for, for, for Supreme Court justices? It's not an historically, not historically a feeder, but that should, you would think that that would happen. If there's any correlation between quality, I mean, the question is how many college students offered an opportunity to matriculate at Harvard or at George Mason are going to be forward-looking enough to say, well, if I go to Harvard, I'm going to have to make all kinds of compromise. Harvard has been pretty decent, actually, it appears, compared to, say, Yale or, or, you know, or Georgetown, obviously. Yeah, no, Harvard Law, from what I can tell, has definitely been less egregious. Uh, Yale Law has been abysmal. Um, I, I should say, actually, though, that I, I, I was debating one of my best friends, a lawyer named Adam Mortara at Yale Law in April. And we, we, we were expecting the brown shirt to come out there and protest us. It actually didn't happen. I, I, think, I think Adam and I were mildly disappointed, if anything, that it did not happen. I, 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 I kind of always consider, uh, you know, uh, these protests a nice cherry on top of the whole cake, so to speak. But it's, look, the, it's the pride of Ben Shapiro's existence. You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. Um, but uh, look, to, to, to your broader point here, something has to give. I mean, some, some kind of course correction has to take shape. I mean, one thing that I've been preaching for, for a while now, and I'm only going to continue to push more, uh, you know, Oren Kaz, American Comp, has talked about this a lot. I think he's exactly right to do so. We as conservatives have to be trying to shepherd and channel more of our people, frankly, of kind of like those red-blooded American people in the heartland, people kind of outside the New York, LA, DC bubble, whatever to basically not go to college at all. To be, to be clear, I, I, there are some people who, who 
should go to college. I mean, if they if they have a specific career in mind and they're passionate about it, and and, and that college is a true necessary condition. But we really need to come better reorient secondary education in high school, ninth through twelfth grade in particular, towards training more people for, for for apprenticeships, for vocational training, for things like that. This 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 mentality, more generally speaking, that kind of college is a rite of passage. It's part and parcel of the American dream that you have to kind of have your four-year bacchanalia with all like the drunken orgies and the hookup culture that somehow somehow this is like this is this is what it means to be an American and then you take out like your hundreds of thousand dollars loans while you're majoring in lesbian dance theory I mean like this has done so much harm to America from from a fiscal standpoint people become ruinously indebted obviously from kind of an intellectual standpoint as far as kind of just this woke excuse me, you know, this woke, just this toxic mentality of indoctrinating an entire generation or two of students here. So getting rid of that mentality as college for all, I think has to be one of the most pressing public policy priorities for the the concerned movement moving forward. But yes, I mean, like, look, I mean, I'm not a parent yet. I mean, like, I I, I obviously, I hope I will be, obviously. But I I thought a little bit about, like, your question, basically. And yeah, I mean, look, I, we, I'm Jewish like you are. I mean, like, I kind of hope that, like, by the time my kids are ready for college, we'll have, like, a Jewish Hillsdale, right, where I, where I can, like, send them off to. Just to be clear, there are some Jews at Hillsdale, but we probably need to kind of expand the Chabad Center there and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, the Ivy League, uh, I, I went to Duke, okay? I went to a good college. I went to Duke. I mean, honestly, when I was there, Duke was really actually not that crazy. I graduated college in 2011. It actually really happened in, like, three to four years maybe after I left. I remember in 2013 or 2014, Duke hired this um, – Iranian professor from, I think, I think from UNC from right down the road in Chapel Hill, you know, who was like a, a Holocaust denier or whatever. Like I, I basically like vowed then and there that I will never donate a single penny to, to, to Duke university again. And like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still like a hardcore Duke basketball fan. I, I've been, I've, I've seen Duke win multiple titles in person. That's my team. But like, would I really want like my son to go there right now? I, I don't know, to be honest with you, the answer is probably no. And that's, that's, that's really sad, but it's just the reality that we have to face. Unfortunately, that's the, that's the current setup. I'll tell you something, you know, that, that, that if you thought about it, you'd probably realize that you could have figured it out. Well, you we may not have known this part. Neither of my parents went to college. I then come out of nowhere and end up at Princeton and we had to borrow $10,000 that was for all four years, folks. And my, I mean, the, the, the total fees for the class of 1985 incoming was under $12,000. But that was, in those days, the dollars were larger than they are now. Fair enough. But they were nothing. The costs were nothing like what they are today. Sure. So I go to Princeton and then I go to Northwestern Law School. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm getting a fairly elite education. None of my kids has gone to college. They're all adults. Uh, none of them will. They they all have yeshiva educations. One of them is learning in Beis Medrash Gavoa, which is the Lakewood Yeshiva, as you know, in, a, the, in America's fastest growing municipality and where the wealth, and this is overwhelmingly people who are not college graduates, although there are college graduates or people who have dubious college credentials and then go on to you know, law school. Um, the wealth is... And again, this is to this is not universal across Orthodox Jews, but people know how to make a living, you know, and they're in mortgaging, they're in mortgages, and they're in lending, and they're in they're in they start every kind of business you could imagine. It is unthinkable in this community, in our community, for 
our kids to, to go to college. I, I always say, you know, the colleges that we're talking about are basically sex farms. And these are the best. These are the best. I mean, this is not even going to, you know, the famous party schools, right? It's unthinkable for us because of the, the, the moral uh, environment. And also because frankly, our, you know, our, our kids are, they're super well-educated. They, they, you know, yeshiva does teach you dialectical thinking extremely well. A lot of, uh, you know, used to be that you had to go you had to get some kind of degree from one from a major yeshiva now columbia and it used to be that columbia was the school you could go you could go to lakewood from directly now harvard takes people directly from lakewood and they're doing very well they're doing very well and it, it is something that people should look at i mean obviously there isn't a, a lakewood out there for everyone and, and nor is lakewood for everyone but you are 100 percent right college has become a racket Higher education has become yeah. a racket. And the idea that these are nonprofits, right. ladies and gentlemen, college presidents in, in, the, in the wealthiest schools are seven figure earners. They live in gorgeous palaces. They, I mean, it, it, there's nothing nonprofit about this. The shareholders who are enriched by it are the faculties and the rapidly multiplying a cadre of deans telling people what to think and what not to think you know so yes that, that's an area that's that conservatives and and that will and breaking the addiction to elite education is a huge challenge especially from you know communities like yours and mine uh when I say yours and mine, I mean, I'm an, my parents, my mother is an immigrant, my father was second generation, you might not be that close to the, you know, to the bone, but the achievement of having your child go to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, sure. or Chicago sure. was, yeah. you know, or, or Duke is the was the be all and end all. And now you can clearly see that it is a, it, you know, it's, it's a really hard, it's a really hard call to, you know, to, to, um, to send your kid to some someplace like that. Let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. What a mar you, you mentioned at the beginning, or I don't know if you were recording yet, but <clears throat> what a what a wild and woolly week it has been. I think of all the things that came out though in the last um, week and a half, the most astonishing and heartwarming was that video of um, Justice Sotomayor. Oh yeah. Extolling yeah. the virtues of, um, uh, of of Clarence Thomas. I mean, that was just unbelievable. Was that was that before or after the Dobbs case? I th I, I think it might have been before, but I, it would be even it would be even more remarkable if it was after. But I can't. I, but I but I don't doubt that. I I, I do not believe it would make. It, that, no no no. It would make a difference. To be clear. Yeah. 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 Let me let me throw it up there because it's only two, you know two minutes long, but it's sure. really worth the price of admission. But I suspect I have probably disagreed with him more than with any other justice. That we have not joined each other's opinions more than anybody else. And yet, Justice Thomas is the one justice in the building that literally knows every employee's name, that they, every one of them. And not only does he know their names, he remembers their families' names and histories. He's the first one who will go up to someone when you're walking with him and say, 
Is your son okay? How's your daughter doing in college? He's the first one that when my stepfather died, sent me flowers in Florida. He is a man who keeps, cares deeply about the court as an institution, about the people who work there, but about people. He has a different vision than I do about how to help people and about their responsibilities to help themselves. I've often said to people, Justice Thomas believes that every person can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I believe that some people can't get to their bootstraps without help. They need someone to help them lift their foot up so they can reach those bootstraps. That's a very different philosophy of life. But I think we share a common understanding about people and kindness towards them. That's why I can be friends with him and still continue our daily battle <laughs> over our difference of opinions in cases. Yes, you're right. I mean, we don't know whether or not, um, you know, I, I suspect that it was, it actually says today, but I don't know what today was. Uh, but that's such an incredible cultural moment and something that we have seen yeah. so little of, so yeah. little of from the, from the left. And I mean, I remember writing back when I was naive, by which I mean two or three years ago, the country's burning down over this supposed, you know, racial divide. This was during the summer of 2020, right? What's 2020? Yeah. You know, Barack Obama could step up and just spend 10 minutes saying, hey, guys, look, you all know that I agree with you that we've got problems. But remember, we're all Americans. I was president of the United States. I, I was elected and I was reelected. We can do this. We, like something in the nature of let's unite from a leader of the, you know, and there is one thing, and this is, you know, when I had David Latt on, if, you know, it's, by, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the culminators, it's understood that this is a name dropping contest between, <laughs> uh, between Josh and, and myself and Josh is going to win it. But, um, you know, uh, he, his, his belief was that at the end of the day, the legal profession in particular, I don't know if so much the profession in the sense of the law firms, but the practice of law is going to be resistant to the, you know, to the mindlessness that we've been talking about, because at the end of the day, you have to, you have to get up and argue and you can't say two plus two equals five. And then we had a just, we had a Senate judiciary hearing where a presumptively and actually uh, confirm, uh, presumably an actually confirmable candidate, Judge Jackson, with excellent credentials, is prepared to say to the whole world that she doesn't know what a woman is. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that was just something, you know, uh, she felt she had to say because she was under political attack. That wouldn't be crazy. But for Justice Sotomayor to stand up and make a statement like this was really, really refreshing. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the famous friendship between the late justices Anthony Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who were famously close friends. They famously 
wined and dined at each other's houses. They used to enjoy going to the opera together in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, I think Nino and uh, Scalia, that is, and, and Marty Ginsburg considered themselves like close personal friends. So it's kind of a throwback to a bygone era. And, you know, look, credit where credit is due. I mean, this is great to see from, from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who in many ways is just a partisan MSNBC talking head hack. You know, I mean, I, Ron, I remember during the oral argument for um, the Dobbs abortion case, the oral argument was on December 1st of last year. Sonia Sotomayor had this one question. I literally just started like guffawing in laughter. She was like, she was asking uh, the state of Mississippi. She was like, oh, you know, like this is your view of where life begins. But how, how do you know that? Or what about these other? I mean, literally, like it was like it was literally like the ramblings, like speaking of college, it was like the ramblings of like a like a 19 year old who was high and one too many pop brownies at 3 a.m. in the dorm room. I mean, it was really no, that bad. Yeah, I mean, and I remember also coming away from the uh, the oral argument uh, on the um, on, on the vaccination Yes. mandate uh through osha yeah yeah Her it, questions it, were had nothing to do with the legal questions right. it was but isn't but but isn't it really bad when people get sick right okay but the, you're you're a justice of the supreme court you know how we decide issues around here no read her read her read her dissents that's not how we decide issues around there yeah yeah no exactly no she she also totally botched the numbers by the way in her argument as far as the people that people that yes. have died she was she was off by like the multiple zeros like multiple orders of magnitude. and it was fascinating that obviously they had a, the the, the uh, parties you know challenging the, the regulation I, I don't remember who, who it ended up being we, we thought we we in the daily wire were hoping it was going to be us but there was someone more photogenic even a decision had been made a tactical decision not to push back on any factual assertion by any justice and that was a smart move i think not to get into the weeds no matter how crazy although the problem is when when, she, when someone like her says crazy things like that and there's no pushback that becomes part of the national narrative and there are a lot of people who think of her as I guess there are, right? Who think of her as the cat's pajamas. I mean, I don't really know that, that there are. Um, it is, having said that, I, I think it was a really nice way to end the week when that video came out. Oh, yeah. But in the last, the last two weeks have been madness on the Supreme Court. And we, you know, for, 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 a, for, a, for a change, we got to sit back and enjoy it. You know, what do you think in terms of, the national debate in terms of where we go here. How is how has this we have a word in, in, in Hebrew to Kufa? How is this moment, this slot of, you know, this 10, 14 days in, in judicial history going to affect the next six to 12 months, you think? Yeah. So just a quick footnote on Clarence Thomas before getting to this. I, yeah. I just want to say I just want to say quickly about Clarence Thomas, who, in my opinion, is the greatest living American in in, in the United States. I, I I really do think that highly of him. Um, I didn't clerk for him, but I did clerk on the Fifth Circuit for a judge, Jim Ho, who clerked for him. I've had any number of friends and mentors, including my friend Adam Mortara, who I mentioned earlier, who clerked for him. So uh, what I have heard from people who clerked for Justice Thomas and everyone else who basically has worked at the Supreme Court, you know, he is by far the most 
popular, the, the most personable justice there. He knows everyone's name. He, I mean, he, he, he'll ask about your family. Even the other clerks of the most liberal justices, Breyer, Ginsburg, whatever, they usually come away from their interactions with Clarence Thomas thinking this is like a great guy because he, he'll take an R. He, he literally rides an RV when the, when the court's in recess over, across America over the summer. He likes sleep in Walmart parking lots, goes to NASCAR races, and the guy's just, he's just, he, he's a true mensch. You he's know? the man. He's, he's, he's really is a man. But, 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 but to your, but to your question, which is, which is kind of the million dollar question. So look, you know, I, I've been a car carrying member of the Federal Society since I was a, a first year student at the University of Chicago. I still am involved with the Federal Society. I give a lot of uh, lectures through them in various law schools and lawyer chapters throughout the country still. This is by far the greatest term that the modern conservative legal movement has, has ever had. Uh, certainly in my lifetime, but I mean, I, I'm sure it's the, it's the most successful term, period, because this has been the goal. I mean, like Roe and Casey, more than any other case, has been the goal, and that goal has been achieved. And then you throw on top of that these other huge cases, this massive Second Amendment case brewing out of New York State, these two huge wins for religious liberty, Carson, Carson, Carson versus Macon out of Maine. It's a huge win, not just for religious liberty, also for, for the school choice movement. Yes. The, the Coach Kennedy case out of, out of Washington State, we finally overturned the 1971 case called Lemon versus Kurtzman. They finally said this is formally overruled. That in and of itself. No more that, lemon test, man. No more lemon, lemon test. Lemon test, lemon test, lemon exactly. test. Exactly. Don hey, Finuto. That yeah. was that was pulled out of an orifice, man. That come on, that is not the Constitution. People have to, yeah. It's you know th this is this is that moment of elections have consequences. Somebody tweeted this morning. This has been the best week of of Donald Trump's presidency. <laughs> No, seriously. I mean, like this one clip has gone viral. I think I saw Jack Posobiec tweet it from the 2016 election where Donald Trump, I can't remember if it's in the primary or the general, but he gets up there and he says, I am I will nominate justices who are pro-life and will overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, that has to be like the greatest promises made, promises kept uh, a moment in United in modern United States presidential history. So uh, I mean, he looks amazing right now. Um, you know, as far as 2024 is concerned, I have to imagine that he's feeling better right now than he was a week and a half ago, whatever, because this obviously is a huge boon to, 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 to his standing there. But as far as what we do next, well, look, I mean, I wrote a column today, actually, the day that we're recording this, that admittedly um, has seemed to trigger some people. It's a little provocative, uh, but, you know, that's what a good column tends to do sometimes, where I basically say that now that we have on the legal right, on the, on the, on the judicial right, we have achieved kind of what we have set out for in many respects, but we've done so by playing defense, by kind of by trying to appeal to kind of a neutrality, because that's really all the Dobbs abortion case does, for instance. It really just it takes us back to where every state can decide. So it's actually technically real. If you think about it, it's really kind of more of a procedural victory than a substantive victory. So my kind of legal call to arms is basically saying that it's now time to go on offense as far as what jurisprudence and the courts are concerned within the confines, obviously, of Article three, the judiciary's narrow, you know, least dangerous branch, all that. But within those proper confines, it's time to go on offense to the to the extent constitutionally possible. So that's what I'm going to be looking for. I'm going to keep on kind of hammering this beat over the next six to 12 months to your question. But we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But for now, I'm still kind of personally just kind of savoring the sweet, beautiful victories. And I'm, I'm frank, I, I don't know about you, Ron, but I'm really not tired of winning quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, we, we, we have been that has not been the problem for a while. That's true. Yes. Now, what happened to the packing the court stuff? This would seem like the moment where we would be hearing them reintroducing or trying. To... 
that doesn't seem to be on the agenda. I have a feeling that it was it, it was um, uh, focus grouped very negatively. And that's why we're not getting it because I can't imagine any other reason. I mean, I guess the only other thing is, well, first of all, I mean, it was ridiculous for Biden in the first place to in institute or implement this entire commission to study the Supreme Court. Right? When, when that commission was unveiled, I think it was last April, April 2021. I mean, like, what in the world was he thinking? I mean, there was this, there's this amazing, amazing quote. I mean, when you say Biden, you mean the White House, right? I mean, we all know that he yeah, has right. yeah, fair nothing enough. to do with this. Right. <laughs> What is what what is crypto shadow President Barack Obama thinking? Right, <laughs> I mean, that's my that's my, that's my personal pet theorist that's who's actually calling the shots at least. Um, but there's this there's this amazing quote from 1937, which is when FDR famously tried to pack the court. And at the time, this, this is like the you know this is the this is the heart of the New Deal, the Great Depression. Democrats dominated both the House and the Senate. But the Democrat-dominated Senate Judiciary Committee refused FDR's core packing measure. And there's this one paragraph that I could read if you want to, but it's just it's just amazing. It, the, they basically say, let the record reflect from here until eternity that we stand by the principle of an independent court that will not be intimidated, that will not be browbeaten. This was a Democrat-controlled committee standing up to FDR, the most iconic Democratic president in, in, in the past century. Really, really, can you really- imagine, Can you imagine Chuck Schumer doing that in a million years? No. No, no. you can't. These, it, are not, it, these are not statesmen. These are not statesmen. No, they're partisan hacks. They're, they're chicks, whatever. Yeah, no, these, we're talking here about partisan hacks. These are not statesmen in any kind of meaningful sense of the term. But the other thing as far as core packing is concerned, and now Biden's latest call is that he wants to kind of nuke the filibuster to, quote unquote, codify Roe versus Wade on national level. Look, they don't have the votes for that. I mean, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have reiterated for what seems like the 13,000th time that they're not going to do that. So at this point, what, what does it amount to? I don't, I don't really but know. I mean, you know, that's an interesting question, and I, I want to let you go after we, you know, talk about it. But Let's skip over the filibuster issue. Let's assume that there were a straight vote on on um on this national codification. Some people have said, "Well, God, how would they do that? They can't do that." The federal, you know, the Supreme Court has spoken. And I said, "Okay, well, what if we just as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know, in other words, we still have the we still have the substantive due process, and we still have, you know." the infinite power of the Commerce Clause, if they passed, or if they just amended the 1964 Civil Rights Act, right, that would be a very clever thing to do and save the, the right to an abortion shall not be, you know, sh sh shall not be infringed. Uh, or, or what do you think would be the response? You know, why wouldn't that work? So if they can Assuming the filibuster is new to your saying, why? Yeah, I'm saying that... let's, let's just a question. It's, it's an entirely <laughs> academic question, but I think it's an important one. Could they, in your view, institute a federal right to, to an abortion? Uh, on existing Commerce Clause grounds, probably. On actual Commerce Clause grounds, no. Um, I, I mean, I... so my, my, that's, what, that's what I first thought, but now I'm thinking it may very well be that. that last week's decision or this week's decision actually prohibits that because if the Supreme Court says the issue of abortion is not a federal issue, can Congress make it a federal issue? In other words, well, well, what the, what, what the court said is that it's not 
protected as a constitutional right under the 14th Amendment. That that doesn't necessarily say that Congress cannot legislate in this field. So, you know, for example, I mean, you know, Congress passed, um, you know, this is the Gonzalez versus Stenhart case, right, from 2007. This is the Partial Birth Abortion Act. So Congress, Congress has legislated in this field before. I mean, President George W. Bush signed that particular bill into law. So I, I don't I don't necessarily read the court that way. They're saying that there's no 14th Amendment substantive due process individual right. But I, I they probably I, again an original understanding of the Commerce Clause. Uh, no, definitely not. But given just the awful precedent in cases like Wickard versus Filburn, for instance, like in the Commerce Clause space in particular, they probably could legislate it and probably find some sympathetic form shop judge out in California who would uphold it. I would imagine. Yeah. Well. Uh, I think that we're going to see all kinds of creative litigating and all, but we're not going to, I think between now and the election, we're not going to see any particularly creative legislating. Uh, in fact, this tends to be the beginning of the dead season in, in, in Washington. Uh, uh, you know, no, everyone is frozen in his positions. The Democrats have, God should save us and it should stay this way and continue only further loads, loads of political electoral problems to overcome. And with God's help, they won't. Enjoy. Let's enjoy it. Well, uh, a hearty amen to that. I'm looking forward to a, to a, to a wonderful, a wonderful patriotic holiday weekend. And uh, I, I, I hope you do the same. But for now, let's just um, let's save for the moment, because, you know, if, if there's one thing that we know about politics, nothing is eternal. You know, there's a, there's oftentimes a boomerang effect. So uh, but for the time being, at least, I'm not thinking about that. I am just kind of savoring what is, by really any measure, the most dynamic, doctrine-shifting, substantively meaningful Supreme Court term of my lifetime. And uh, it's just a wonderful time to be part of this movement, and I'm thrilled to be part of it with you, Ron. And on this note, we will culminate the interview. Thank you very much for joining us, Josh. Have a great, of course, people are going to see this after Independence Day, but remember, you're an American. That means every day is Independence, Independence Day. Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, take care. Thanks so much. Ever, that's the first ever hoot on culmination. That's what you. That's what you do to me, John. By the way, I love. I I I love the culminator thing. So, am I a culminator that I appear on the podcast? Well, if you you know, I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, the lure of merch is just getting harder and harder <laughs> for me to say no to. All right, have a good job. also. You too. Take care. Good job. Hey, thank you for listening to the Culmination Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.